welcome to episode two of Phil's Breakfast Metal. I'm once again joined by my co-host Rob. Hello. Yeah, and we're going to do another album review show today. Uh, before we get going, I thought I'd cover a few things. I haven't as yet explained what the name, where the name of this podcast <laughs> comes from. It is as simple as, this is what my flatmate used to refer to the weird metal I listened to first thing in the morning each day. So, he'd come down and uh, hear me playing Earls of Mars, one of the bands we're covering later today, <laughs> and not understand why I would be enjoying this. Um, yeah, this breakfast metal, not to be confused with the actual genre breakfast metal, that since naming the podcast I've discovered is a, is a thing. Uh, Rob, would you like to read out the Urban Dictionary definition of what breakfast metal is? <laughs> sure. Breakfast metal. A genre of metal music reminiscent of doom and sludge, oftentimes improvised and recorded on first take. Breakfast metal bands usually have multiple vocalists, and oftentimes the musician will change instrument from song to song. This genre was pioneered by anal whispers... I didn't know that was a thing. <laughs> uh, Rob hasn't listened to this yet. I've actually listened to some breakfast metal, and hopefully anal whispers aren't listening, but I, I didn't get it. Uh, improvised doom slash grind metal, which is very sloppily played, doesn't make a hell of a lot of sense to me. Uh, yeah, on top of that, we, we've had a few reviews since uh, the first episode. Uh, so far, we've had... Um, Rob sounds like he really knows what he's talking about, and you offer a very good counterpoint to that. And that was from my girlfriend. Um, we've had, so you just play music, and that was from my friend Rich. And we've had, so it's just talking, why would anyone want to listen to that? And that was from my mum. <laughs> also, to address um, the end of the last episode, I said we're, uh, I was seeing Mastodon at Bloodstock Festival, and whether they'd be any good live. Turns out, really good live, like, incredibly so. They had really like a really impressive backdrop and stage show on top of playing pretty much perfectly. Like a um, really interesting set of tracks from every single album, including some weird ones like the Czar. I mean, when we saw them back in the O2 about a year ago, did they have the whole light show thing? I can't remember now. No, I don't think they had any of that. And I, they played Oblivion, I think, from Crack the Sky, but they barely played any of that. And yeah. focusing on stuff from The Hunter, I think it was at the time. Yeah. Which is a bit of a shame, really, because I really like Crack the Sky and the earlier albums. Yeah, so they kind of avoided The Hunter when I saw them, um, which I'm, I don't know, quite fond of because I didn't really like The mm. Hunter. I think mm. probably the weakest of their six albums. Yeah, so the only real downside is I still don't understand what Brent's trying to do vocally live. <laughs> He's a strange cat creature. <laughs> yeah, the kind of strange mewlings. Um, the other three vocalists all sound fantastic. Mm. And one of them's drumming while doing it, so he's got no mm. excuse. Mm. Um, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, so this week we're going to be covering four bands. Um, got a bit of an interesting variety. Two tech death bands, but one old, one new. Um... A funeral doom band Ahab and a very odd band called the Earls of Mars. Uh, we're going to start the show with uh, Alkaloid. So Alkaloid released their first album, the Malk, the, Malk of Grimoire. Yeah, the Malk, the Malk of Grimoire in 2015, and I think this was a self-funded album. Yeah, you were saying earlier the website is a pledge for music. Or oh something. yeah, yeah, it was yeah. It, it was a kind of Kickstarter-like album. Mm. 
uh, made on Pledge for Music. Well, they had all sorts of rewards, including they would record guitar solos on your work, which is quite something when you hear the level of musicianship on this album. I think even a bass solo was offered as well. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> but yeah, so this seems to be a real big thing now of bands doing these pledges where they'll give you guitar lessons if mm. you pledge like 30, 40 quid for the album. Like, it seems to be a real... Yeah, it could be a real interesting turning point for music of bands getting away from labels and doing these things themselves. All sorts of different levels as well. You got the t-shirt pack to support them, I think. But yeah. Then, then you go all the way through to someone like Nebula Viscaris who are doing Patreon stuff, and it's really interesting to see the way that bands can make music independently. Yeah, I mean, you do have to commit to buying a t-shirt of an album that might suck. Mm. <laughs> but, yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, this one doesn't suck. So. Yeah. So the band is a really, like, um, a kind of super group of German tech death musicians. So it was formed, um, the idea came about when Hans Grossman, um, ex-obscure drummer, ex-necrophagist uh, drummer, yeah. uh, decided he wanted to work with... Um, vocalist and uh, guitarist of Dark Fortress, Morian, who, yeah, he's uh, an interesting character. He's been, he's got a fair few projects. Um, as on top of his death and black metal things. He's also a classical composer and chaos magician. Um, whatever that means. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so those who wanted to work together, so this uh, the lineup of uh, Morian vocals and mainly rhythm guitar was then filled out by... Um, also, ex obscure guitar, obscure guitarist uh, Christian Munzer, um, also of Necrophagus as well, actually. Um, then Danny Tunker, who's kind of a like seems to be a freelance, joins hundreds of bands. I think the sort of longest run I've seen of his is I think he has two or three albums with Aborted. Other than that, he's been a live guitarist for like thirty odd bands. It would seem just yeah, this genius uh, musician, but never seemed to have found a permanent project and then finally um i don't even pronounce this surname uh <laughs> linus Klaustenser, uh current bass player of obscura mm. uh yes yeah, so this is a a kind of hyper technical project very progressive as well um yeah, how would you describe their sound, Rob? Well, so, I mean, the, the obscure thing is a good point to start from because you can hear a lot of the same influences, the same sort of guitar styles, even the same sort of vocal styles you hear in Obscura, although the album has a lot more variation than that, and I was quite pleased to sort of see how silly bits of it are and sort of old progressive metal-style four-part track about building a Dyson Sphere by mining the Orc Cloud, which I think really helps the album sound sort of different from a lot of other tech def. Yeah, so, uh, like... <laughs> Beyond beyond the obvious influence of you know bands like like Obscure like Aborted the kind of very technical modern metal there seems to be a lot of throwback to say like old bands like I see a lot of Cynic and um, later Death in this as oh, well definitely yeah and actually in the the four part um, metal opera of Dyson Sphere <laughs> almost like a leaning towards Rushisms yeah yeah it's, it's very reminiscent of some of the Rush like Cygnus X One that sort of thing. Songs about sci-fi, essentially, in space, but with a sort of death metal. And then acoustic guitars and everything backing, which the variation sort of reminds you of old progressive rock bands like that. Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, actually, I think uh, the, the drummer has even said he's a massive Rush fan. So, <laughs> yeah, it's unsurprising that influence. I, I, don't, I don't think any self-serving drummer can't be a Rush <laughs> fan, really. Yeah, I think if you're, if you're into progressive metal, you mm. probably got into Rush on some <laughs> level or another at some point. So yeah, this is a um, 
very long album, so about 72 minute, 12 track epic. Um, very much written as well, I think, with not playing live in mind. Although this band have toured since, I think this was very much set up as a studio project. Mm. Um, I don't know. The way it's put together seems very... Like, it wouldn't always translate live. Now I've Yeah, got... a lot of guitar parts which sort of cross over into the next guitar part without enough time to sort of switch between them which is a really interesting exercise in what you can do in a studio and like really adds the atmosphere and the sound of the album but I don't know how well that would translate in a live setting yeah I think uh, neither of us have actually seen any recordings of it and their touring's not being if they played the UK it was probably only London so mm. haven't had a chance to see this in action although they do seem to have plans to make this wasn't a one-off project. They do have plans to make more albums, and I think there are now plans to roll this out as more of a live project. Actually, bar, bar the vocalist and bass player, most of the rest of them don't seem to be involved in particularly mm. full-time projects at the moment, so if this album's popular enough, maybe they will focus more attention on that. Okay, considering how great the musicianship is and how great musicians these guys are and all the other projects they've been in, I think it would be really cool to see what they would do with the songs in a live context. I'm sure they'd be able to come up with a way to still make them sound really good, despite the sort of more studio aspect to this album. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. Um, Rob, why don't you walk us through a kind of structure of a standard uh, <laughs> alkaloid <laughs> song, like in the vein of, say, like the intro track Carbon Phrases mm. or uh, From a Hadron Machinist? Well, the thing that it's got that I really like is a huge amount of variation, not only in the styles of vocals, in the, whether they use acoustic guitars or um, sort of really heavily distorted guitars and things like Cthulhu, but sort of dynamic range as well. The range of how quiet and how loud things are really varies. So um, what's the first song? The uh, Carbon Phrases. Carbon the... Phrases, yeah, which is the first one I heard. starts off really sort of quietly and slowly builds its way up. Um, bringing the electric guitars in very slowly and sort of building the volume of those up, which is really nice to see because a lot of, you know, tech death is often a sort of onslaught of, you know, really frenzied guitar. And that's really cool and works really well sometimes, but it's nice to hear such a dynamic variation. And they have the sort of frenzied bits of guitar, which, again, are really cool, but they fit within a wider context of a much more varied song with really heavy bits and then quieter bits. And the variation in vocals really helps as well from sort of clean vocals all the way through to really heavy vocals on Cthulhu and bits of Funeral for a Continent, the final song. Yes, yeah, so the the song Carbon Phrase, as Rob has mentioned there, starts with a very, like, I think very cynic kind of influenced way, mm. or a like really mm. mellow, kind of slightly jazzy influenced backing section with um, Maureen doing these kind of quite um, odd mid-range vocals. He does mm. these very drawn out, it's clean singing for the most part, <laughs> that, and then builds up into more of what would be recognisable as a modern tech death song. So mm. one, like after about two minutes ends up in more of a kind of obscure necrophagia style riffing like very clean tone very clear guitar well mm. sorry not clean tone but like very clean audible very guitars sort of yes yeah. there's no kind of entomb style messiness here this <laughs> is very very polished very clean music same sort of sound in the drums as well mm. you can hear almost every hit that happens and say, for example, the bass player, you can actually tell what he's doing for most of mm, this album, mm. despite there being three guitarists on it. Mm. And at, most po- at the most points that he's layers beyond three guitars, you'll get regularly these songs when they build up into the really heavy moments. You'll have four or five guitar parts running over each other. So yeah, the album starts off with two tracks of this very progressive, like 10, 12 minute songs, like really 
going from all lows to highs. And then we get Fulu, which is a more traditional death metal song, I'd yeah, say. Yeah, yeah, it starts off a really heavy riff, and it's nice for them, you know, they can sort of pull back the... You have bits where you have sort of very technical leads going over the top, but then they do pull it back to just the really heavy riff. And that sort of variation is really nice. Yeah, it yeah. It works very, very well. Yeah, and there is always on show a high degree of technicality, but more so than a lot of bands of this style, and actually bands these guys have been in, I think this is the best use I've seen of technicality to fit the music, like, mm. just mm. to make a more interesting piece, a more kind of, just do stuff in the music you've not heard before so much, rather than just be very, very involved soloing. Yeah, particularly if you consider the solos on this album as well. Parts of them almost remind me of old, you know, classic rock guitar solos, or even, you know, old heavy metal guitar solos. But at the same time, they've still got the elements of technical death metal and sort of old death metal, uh, which just sort of emphasises whatever bit of the song they're going for at that time, which is really nice. Yeah, yeah. I mean, do you find what... (laughs) Do you get what I get? Where with some really technical metal, especially when it gets into soloing, that you just totally zone out on lead guitar that is impossibly complex and impossibly, like, just inventive and so on, but it's just so fast and... Uh... Yeah, it's, it's a real art to make that really sort of listenable and catchy and to add to the atmosphere of whatever song you're doing. Yeah. is uh, a good example, really. It's sort of... It gives you that sort of Lovecraftian weirdness when you listen to the sort of fast guitar parts, technical guitar parts they put over the main heavy riff, which I think... Like, that's using technicality to further the song, which mm. is exactly what you should be using it for. I think I would say Christian Munzer is definitely a master of acts. You look at his previous mm. projects, so he was on Necrophagus Epitaph album, which mm. is mm. still to this day lauded as an absolute death metal classic. And then bands never followed up from that, which is mm. kind of a shame in a way. But um, And then, then also a Guitar for Obscure, again, ones who... Although extremely technical, they've got quite memorable leads. Like mm, definitely, the one thing I would say about Alkaloid in comparison to Obscura is that they do sort of sort out some of the issues Obscura have with appearing very heavy. Because mm. uh, Obscura sometimes very technical and really good bad. I really like them, but they sometimes felt a little bit light, and they yeah. found it quite difficult to bring it very heavy. Whereas Alkaloid, they still they still have the tech dev sound. We're not talking like a Doom or a Funeral <laughs> Doom band like Ahab. But they do get these really heavy riffs where you can really feel it, uh, which sometimes Obscura have struggled with. There are songs where they do that really well, but Alkaloid have done that very consistently over the album. Oh, yeah, yeah, no, I, I couldn't agree more. Um, yeah, so this, this this album has a lot of very interesting elements. I think another thing that separates this from a lot of Tech Death is the vocal performance. Mm. So usually with these bands, you have a vocalist, also a guitarist, who very much goes for the one noise. So Obscura, similar thing of, like, that guitarist pretty much has his one sound. And, you know, he's he's playing guitar at the same time, so he can be forgiven for not being the most varied or complex vocalist. But the range of noises Morian produces in this album, it is amazing to think it's there's really one good. vocalist. So he's got your very standard death metal screams, but also being vocalist for... Uh, black metal band Dark Fortress um, he's a very good black metal vocalist so you do get some odd really high pitched black metal wailing in there and he's got sort of clean vocals which do vary a lot as well from a sort of like mm. background chanting style to 
quite weird. You almost get the sort of middle ground between the sort of death growls and the clean vocals as well, which is really nice to yeah, see. It adds he, sort of a fresh taste to a lot of songs. Like he does these incredibly like almost rumbly low vocals mm, that seem mm. like clean vocals that seem almost slightly guttural still. It's yeah, a, yeah. it's a sound you've just got to hear to yeah, it's hard, very hard to describe. Um, and then occasionally he'll throw in some extremely high vocals, which the another one of the things that tipped me off with the Rush influence. Yeah, there is yeah. definite attempts to be uh, Geddy Lee in there. Yeah, <laughs> well and truly, yeah. And yeah, so this album goes through a lot of songs in the style, like switches between tracks in the style of Carbon Phrases, like very long, epic. Um, then you have got the Fuluy ones, like five minute more long songs where complexly written but more traditional mm. metal songs like uh, Malkoff Grimoire and uh, Alter Magnitudes are far more in this style. Then we have in the middle of the album the Dyson Sphere, which is a a four-part concept song, which <laughs> it probably kind of fails in what it's trying to do, but I, it, I still it, it love is it. Sort for of <laughs> wonderful for that, and it does include the lyrics "The Oort Cloud is Demonic," which I, I found really fun. Yes, yeah, so that's kind of getting us into the um, the kind of lyrical themes of this album. Uh, so. If you want to know more about Alkaloid, go to their YouTube channel because they have hundreds of videos of them explaining kind of why they've chosen certain instruments, like the lyrical concept of every single song Morian talks through at length. And yeah, anything you'd want to know about the band is up there. And yeah, well worth going through if you're enjoying the stuff. But yeah, so the main like concept of the entire album Morian said he was going for is a kind of mixture of um, scientific meets kind of the magical. So it's going to that level of science where we don't really, like, pretty much sci-fi stuff. Going to that bit of science where our understanding slightly ends and it kind of tails off into the fantastical. So the Dyson Sphere four-part album is, four-part song, sorry, is about the kind of creating a star-powered machine, a kind Mm. of, uh, and then consuming the entire universe of this uh. which works really nicely with some of the other stuff like obviously they have a song called Cthulhu so there's Lovecraftian influences in there as well and that sort of style gels pretty nicely in terms of the atmosphere that's created on a lot of the songs the idea of something beyond our knowing something that's unknown and terrifying for that reason along with the sort of fringe of science it gives a really cool atmosphere to the album yeah I, I mean it- this is not hard sci-fi. There's definitely an attempt to understand the science, but I think, mm. um, yeah, uh, as someone who has an astrophysics degree, I think he slightly missed the point in some places. <laughs> but it, it's still really interesting, and it's it's just introducing a lot of concepts into metal I've not heard done before. Like, just, yeah, fantastically interesting. Like, the, the amazing uh, closer to the album, Funeral for a Continent, which is a 12-part song that just moves through different moves. Goes through whole. so many stages of it, yeah. I think there's not a single repeating riff in this. Mm. And it, this is about... <laughs> the idea of this song is about the, the kind of how at the South Pole there is a three-metre layer of ice. And below that, we kind of have an idea there are microorganisms living that we've never been able to study. So Morin has just expanded that idea out into what if there's a... that underneath that layer those life forms have got bigger and bigger and bigger. And then when the poles melt, a giant monster will appear. <laughs> Which is fantastically simply just metal. Very much yeah. so. And actually, Funeral for a Continent is a really good example of that kind of soloing Rob was mentioning earlier. So the the album ends with like, 
it brings it to a close with this really quite uplifting kind of prog rock riff um, mm-hmm. or prog rock which, which section. Which sounds sort of it's on electric guitars and acoustic guitars simultaneously, you can hear. Mm. There's a lot of interesting stuff going on there. And it features Danny Tunker and Christian Munz are just soloing off each other, kind of doing a back and forth trade. And none of the solos they do at the end are anything but melodic. They're not mm, mm. They're not um, particularly self-indulgent at all. Like There's not really a hell of a lot of complex techniques on show. It's just really melodic soloing, which for musicians like this, it's fantastic to hear and be so restrained and make just such an epic closer here. Mm, mm. Yeah, so uh, I wonder if there's anything else uh, worth mentioning about this album. Oh, we we get the uh, we get an instrumental towards the end called Sea Value Enigma, which is an interesting concept. Although again, I'd say falls into the category of maybe didn't quite work. So this is a three minute guitar instrumental, although it's not actually played. That song is entirely constructive, constructed of just different notes thrown together in a program. Mm. So mm. the actual all the notes are recorded off individual instruments and then Morian's arranged them into one piece it's like as he put it trying to show what he would do if he had infinite playing ability <laughs> and his argument for this is he sees himself as a composer like this is a man who has composed classical symphonies and so on and he wanted to just try making a guitar effectively a guitar solo mm. with no limits in essence, it's not a very musical piece, I'd say. I don't know, what, what was your well, opinion it, it, on it? It's sort of, like, it's a really interesting idea, because the idea of composing a guitar piece from having that bank of notes is really great. I'm not sure if it fully works now, but it's great that someone's actually tried to do that, because it maybe it misses the feel of an actual guitarist playing something, perhaps. Perhaps that's what it is. But um, certainly something like that, with experience of trying it more times, going through it, you could certainly get something really interesting, which an actual guitar player could never manage, given the limitations of actually playing the piece. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, kind of how I felt with it. Mm. I'd say, I don't know how you feel about this, but my only sort of real criticism, I've got twofold here, really. The album's 72 minutes long. I think, again, and I say this about most albums at this length, it probably could have been a bit shorter. It, I think that's probably my only criticism as well. So I'm, I'm glad that there are experiments like the whole Dyson Sphere and the Sea Value Enigma on there. And I'd sort of be a bit sad if they were taken away. And particularly because this was a crowdfunded album, the fact there's so much content on there is a really good thing. But in terms of just it being a better album, it could have been streamlined a little bit. There are some songs that maybe could have been altered or omitted. Uh, but, but I like the fact that it sort of gives something back to the people who put money into it. Yeah, yeah, I, I guess that's fair. I mean, if they, they gave us the max they, they mm. could have out of that, I guess. The only other thing I'd say about it is I feel because of the cleanness of the production, because of the, the, the clear urge to make all five musicians shine for all times, moments like Fulu and the Malkoloff Grimoire, where they try and go for the really heavy, really in-your-face riffing, do sound to some extent like they could be heavier. I think definitely, yeah. But they solve a lot of the problems that Obscura sometimes have, and other tech death bands. I'm, I feel like I'm unfairly singling out Obscura, but it's just because <laughs> they're all in it. <laughs> so many musicians have been in Obscura, but uh, some of the problems that other tech death bands have when you try to hear all the musicians very clearly are sounding very heavy. But you never get the sort of I don't know Triptychon style where all the instruments just plug in perfectly at the right levels to make something sound truly massive. And they they get a lot better, but it's still it's a challenge for a band who are trying to mix something so you can hear all the guitars, which is 
is something really great about the album, but obviously it has disadvantages as well. Yeah, and maybe this is just something that comes out of this being this lineup's first outing. I mean, they're all very experienced on, and the um, the album is mixed by uh, V Santura, who is a fellow Dark Fortress guitarist and guitarist of Triptychon. So um, again, another musician yeah. really knows what he's doing. And for the most part, this is a really interesting sounding, really impressive album, but. Yeah, maybe he, he this guy mixing it doesn't quite bring his trip to con skills of getting yeah, the yeah. real heavy bits it's supremely heavy. Such a different genre, but uh, yeah, like overall, it's a really great and really interesting achievement. Some of the most interesting tech def I've heard for a very long time. Yeah, yeah, it's because uh, as a, someone who's a big fan of the old the old American tech def scene, um, sort of deaf, cynic, atheist, love these kind of bands. I felt so much reminiscent of that in here, mm. and uh, I found that just made me very excited for the project. Um, can't wait to see what they do on the next album. I think to play us out for this set, we're going to go for the fifth track from the album, Organism, which probably will showcase pretty much everything we talked about here. You, this song pretty much has the entire range of Morian's weird vocal <laughs> techniques. You'll hear that low rumbling thing we were mm. talking about to start with. Also, you'll see the kind of movement from very melodic, very light to start with into like a supremely heavy end section. Mm. But yeah, so um, here's Organism.
Alright, so the second album we're going to be covering today is probably the polar opposite. It's another modern band. Uh, this is the, well, they call themselves their genre Nautic Funeral Doom, which I think is a genre that just contains this band. <laughs> this is Germany's Ahab. Um, we're going to be covering their 2009 album Divinity of the Oceans, released on Napalm Records. This is, like, probably quite, I would say, fairly standard Funeral Doom release, but just with a few tweaks that I think made it fantastically interesting on that scale. Mm. How, would they, how would you describe their sound, Rob? Uh, so, I mean, this is the first Funeral Doom band that I ever listened to, coming from things like Candlemass and stuff, just to the inclusion of the more death metal style vocals, but at the same time with the same sort of riff structure, but then it sounds as if they borrowed stuff from Morbid Angel as well. There's some points which sound like slow, God of Emptiness style Morbid Angel riffs. But with the whole sort of really mournful, sad atmosphere to most of the songs. And with the sort of themes that Ahab go for, um, obviously Moby Dick being a prominent <laughs> influence and everything else about the sea and drowning and people having to eat each other, it really works very well. And you have the sort of crushing heaviness of some of the riffs, which with all the themes and all the lyrics and all the sort of extra sounds that are in the record, it just sort of sounds like the crushing weight of the sea which I think really helps enforce just the heaviness of the album. Yes, yeah, so if you're kind of new to Funeral Doom, this is effectively the logical extension of Doom Metal, where it's, it is incredibly slow riffing, incredibly detuned guitars, like normally super low guttural death metal vocals, but rather than going for brutality, they're really going for these super slow, just very crushing atmosphere mm. and Ahab seemed to have a way of taking that theme out and extending it to somehow make it feel like being lost at sea mm. um, so this is their second album the first album deals straightforwardly with the theme of the story of Ahab the, the book Moby Dick uh, the second album deals with the story of the sinking of the Wessex which is the story that originally inspired Moby Dick so this is how a whaling ship was out on a standard whaling mission came across a giant when catching a smaller female whale came across a giant male they'd never giant seen before giant bull sperm whale which <laughs> rammed the ship and sank it and so yeah the, the album starts off from the point of the ship being sunk and the crew being sort of left adrift on the ocean and life rafts and going through all the horrors of having no food no water out in the baking sun and yeah, all the kind of personal struggles that are dealt mm. therein. Mm. And I think, as concepts go, I this is really up there with a band capturing that as well as can be captured. Like, the music perfectly fits the kind of isolation, desperation, kind of loneliness and just mournfulness of the story. Mm. Mm. And at the same time, it has, oh, like the Tomb of Club really, has quite a lot of variation. The vocals as well have this sort of chanting style that you'll find in some other funeral doom bands like bell witch and then going into the really heavy parts but it, it carries the same theme throughout the almost the whole album and throughout the songs as well sometimes it will build up from a long time with sort of acoustic guitars into really heavy as i said almost morbid angel style riffs and sometimes it will switch between the lighter more mournful acoustic passages and the really heavy parts as well Yes, yeah, so like uh, as Rob was saying, we have these kind of like clean sort of chant. Like 
sometimes chanted, sometimes more kind of like very mournful, low, drawn out notes in the vocals, which I would say is the big thing that sort of separates this album wise from similar bands like uh, Evoken and uh, Mournful Congregation. The, the sound of Ahab's album is very much like an Evoken album, but it's slightly more melodic. There's a bit more sort of clean lead guitar passages. Never really anything that would approach a solo, but there's a lot of non-repeating lead patterns on the guitar. A lot of very, very nice melodies which really capture the essence of the album and add in to all of the stuff that's being done underneath with the vocals. And actually, as well, like citing the drummer here for showing amazing restraint. <laughs> yes. Um, which, which really adds to everything and really nice sort of... I think Nickerson's theme, the final song, there's a really nice sort of... Um, rolling on the snare build-up. Instead of a normal sort of groove, you have just this snare rhythm that's played throughout the whole thing, which sounds almost like the beginning of some march or some horrible, epic, crushing thing, which builds you into the really heavy part of the song that happens later. Yeah, so with this album, we have a kind of... The drumming style in it is very, very restrained. It's quite interesting, but extremely slow. Mm. He, doesn't, he doesn't keep the beat completely simple. He does a lot in that template. But he's never doing all that much that fast. We occasionally have build-ups where we do get the double bass, like kick drums coming. The band do get fast and heavy in places, but they are few and far between. And it's always at an end of like a massive build-up. Mm. Mm. Um, yeah, they have a really good sense of place, of where to put sections like that in order to emphasise what they're trying to do in the song and always know how to either just sort of drop yourself into the heavy part at the beginning of some of the songs or whether to build up to it. And that just, it really emphasises the songwriting ability. Yeah, this um, I think I could say with this album we get very much the same style for all seven songs. It's all all in this kind of very long, drawn-out uh doomy setup but there's enough variation in each song like enough different movements that again this is another almost 70 minute long album a real mammoth piece but like most funeral doom albums actually justifies that runtime because you want to get into that atmosphere you want to get into that headspace like this is a deep and involved uh, <laughs> it's, 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 an, it's an epic like Moby Dick it's sort of the whole point is it's this long hard struggle and eventually I mean the album's not a struggle the album's really great to listen to but it, it emulates that sort of huge epic struggle and, and the, the sinking of the Wessex as well where the people ended up falling off the boat on raft and ended up resorting to cannibalism to stay alive it's that sort of whole story so it sort of needs that runtime. if it was only half an hour 40 minutes long it would sort of feel like it didn't reach a conclusion yes uh, track 6 very much covers the cannibalism mm. theme uh, gnawing bones coffins lots <laughs> I, uh, coffin was the poor younger crew member of who drew the short straw mm. and was eaten by the rest of the crew. <laughs> this, yeah, um, and the the music definitely appropriately covers that subject. The other thing I want to mention with this album is I think this has the all time best opening chord of an album ever. I, I will put that out there. <laughs> I, I don't know. If, I would like to hear anyone's suggestions for a better opening first chord. Yeah, but yeah. <laughs> there's something about the the first note of. Yet another raft of Medusa, of the Medusa, uh, 
It's just perfect. It kind of summarizes exactly what you're going to get. Yeah, yeah. It, 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 yeah. If one note could summarize an album, that would be it. Just a really, in one note, you capture the sadness, at the same time, the heaviness of the album. And it brings you straight in at the beginning of the album. It doesn't sort of, because it's got a lot of points where it does build up to a heavier and other sort of mournful moments later. But at the beginning of the album, it brings you straight in and shows you exactly what you're going to get with very slow, heavy, but very melodic guitar passages over the top. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, so the, the kind of quite interesting thing was because this is an incredibly accomplished album, and actually the album before um, is I would say equally uh, like a mesmerising piece, slightly heavier, um, less of the clean melodic elements, but equally an essential listen. And this is a relatively new band. None of the members of this band have been known for pretty much anything else. This is their second album. Um, yeah, they, they've had a consistent lineup, and actually. They've released two more since this, uh, The Giant and... Boats of Glencarrick. Boats of Glencarrick. Yeah. They're a great introduction to Funeral Doom, I think. Particularly if you know you wanted to get one of the more recent albums, Boats of Glencarrick is, I think, a really great introduction to this sort of mm. style because it can be tricky to come into something that's so slow, generally, and to get it. Whereas Boats of Glencarrick has some faster songs. Fast, by Ahab's terms, is particularly <laughs> yeah, yeah, it gets fast. up to about 100 BPM at some points. <laughs> But it, it's a good introduction to like a genre which now has a lot of really interesting bands doing similar things. But Ahab are definitely one of the brightest stars in this very I, doomy black scene. Yeah. <laughs> they, they have a few more, I would say, maybe Hooks is putting it too, too kind of catchily. Maybe it's not quite that. But they've got more Hooks on a band like Esoteric would. Mm, right? mm. Yeah, definitely, I would say, this is the ideal first... Um, Funeral Doom album. So yeah, uh, so the lineup um, don't really have any notable other projects, and also in their, I think, eight years lifespan, haven't had a single lineup change, which I think is quite something. Yeah, yeah pretty impressive. And four near equally solid albums. I say the Giant is maybe the closest to a misstep of the lot. Some weak parts, but again, it's you can see. A- evolution throughout it of just trying different things you have a very very much heavier first album in the sort of doom vein and then you get more of the inclusion of the acoustic melodic pieces and then you come all the way to the boats of Glencarrig where there are more faster songs more experiments and stuff like that and I still think Divinity of Oceans holds up as the best example of what they've done but they're still trying to do new things and interesting things and that's a really interesting take on Funeral Doom which is just now beginning to become a really big thing. Yeah, yeah, I think it definitely a genre that's yeah, getting a lot more attention recently. Not mm. sure what what's happened. I, I guess there's just been a hell of a lot of good Funeral Doom releases. Mm. All the bands we mentioned so far, uh, Mournful Congregation, Esoteric Evoken, have all released brilliant albums mm. in the last few years, all well worth checking out. Uh, so yeah, the song we decided to play us out is uh, Nickerson's Theme. Uh, Rob, do you want to <laughs> describe this one? Yeah, um, so, so this one I really like because it shows how well they can build to a conclusion, almost like a classical composer or something. It starts off with the really nice, slow, mournful acoustic guitars and some of the clean vocals, the sort of chanting or very deep, mournful voice that we discussed, and then builds its way up into a really heavy piece. So it's a really great example of the sense of place and the, re- and the great riffs that they have come up with.
Right, so the third band we're covering today are the uh, incredibly interesting The Earls of Mars. Now this band are probably, of all the ones we've done on the two episodes so far, probably the least metal. I think they'd be maybe considered a rock band. They're quite quite an interesting collective of musicians. Uh, so they started around 2012 for relatively known British musicians, I think all been in bands round about the the London scene. Um, yeah, so they have a lineup of vocalist and keyboard player, uh, drummer, guitarist, and then a double bass player playing what was a weird approximation of jazzy blues riffs and then maybe more leaning to the Orange Goblin kind of style mm, of playing. Stoner style stuff, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but it's, I mean, they, they definitely have a lot of metal influences. If you listen to some of the songs like Fisticuffs, um, it starts off with some really heavy guitar riffs. And so I think that's why they're worth including. They may not fully be a metal band, but there's definitely a lot of metal influences in there. Yeah. They're, as I said, a incredibly new outfit only been going about four years we thought we may as well cover their entire discography because it's one demo one album and a recently released ep um as far as i know i think all their stuff's been independently released this band mainly got their uh kind of fame supporting orange goblin that's where i, I first came across them just playing this incredibly weird brand of music uh definitely got crowds attention like so their style is a very weird kind of, yeah, sort of stoner rock, but with like kind of a sometimes like swung influence, like swing influence in the playing. Some very, very weird vocal delivery choices. Yeah, some of the most interesting vocal delivery I think I've ever heard. And you were saying when you've seen them live, is it Harry Armstrong? I think the Harry Armstrong, the yeah, singer, that is his veins on his neck were all standing out, and really he looks like he sounds. Yes, yeah. is the thing. He comes across as very demented in his delivery. Mm. So on that tour, they were only selling their first demo, which um, Rob's not heard, but effectively can be ignored because all three tracks were recorded slightly better for their first album, self-titled Earls of Mars. This album is it, really interesting. It was recorded in a kind of style where it was clearly meant to sound like the band were playing live. So mm. every track does just sound like four musicians in a room working together. They're, it's quite a short album, all the songs are three or four minutes, and but go for a lot of changes. So we have a lot of like stuff that gets into a very heavy position at times, stuff that's kind of more light and uh, melodic. And the range of sort of emotions as well that you hear on the album, the sort of tones that they go for for different songs. Like if you look at something like The Swinger, which I think the one we'll be playing later, it's... Yeah, you know, it starts off with this sort of swan blues style bass line, and it's it's a very sort of almost like party style swing song, which is with a very heavy guitar in it and mad vocal delivery. And if you look at the next song, the Astronomer Pig, it's a really sad sort of. It's it's a little bit slower, but it's it's really sad and it builds up. It has different passages sometimes where it is just the bass of a very simple rhythm. And again, massive range in vocal delivery, building up to really heavy parts as well. But just has a huge... And then there's the last glass eye maker, which sort of cements the Earls of Mars's reputation of being really creepy at times, <laughs> yeah. particularly on the EP with uh, Mr. Peeps Never Sleeps as well, which is a song where you don't really want to think about the meaning behind <laughs> a lot of the lyrics. 
Yeah, we, like what we hear in a lot of these songs as well. As I said before, they're very much recorded in a style that's meant to sound like a band, band playing live. So we get the the double bass in this has a huge part in the music because the guitar's not overdubbed. So if a guitar's doing, if the the guitarist, um, got the name, Dan Harding, Dan. Dan Hardingham, um, <laughs> who, yeah, kind of an, an interesting guitarist, never particularly showy, but really fits the music well. If he's kind of going into a lead passage, um, Cy McCarthy, the bass player, will have to take up the whole kind of uh, kind of musical end of the rhythm, and it means you have this really prominent double bass sound, which is a sound you don't hear in metal. Yeah, yeah, with an instrument that's sort of rarely used, particularly on songs like Fisticuffs, which are really heavy. It's amazing to hear how an instrument like that translates perfectly into the really sort of heavy area. And having prominent, highly mixed bass just makes the whole album sound a bit bigger and a bit more sort of fun because the heavy elements are really emphasised. And then when it strips back to bits of just the bass line, that feels, it feels right. The volume levels are correct, the mixing's right. So it's really good to have that mixed so highly in this album. Yeah, it definitely has a very kind of, there's definitely a very 70s vibe to this. This does mm. feel like a very old style album despite it being released in 2013. Um, but it does have those influences as well from metal, which you wouldn't have really found at the time with very heavy guitar parts and stuff like that. So it takes influences from everywhere, really. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think the thing we need to cover, because it's definitely one of the most glaring parts of The Elves of Mars, is the lyrics to the songs. <laughs> um, the the concepts they come up with for their songs are yeah, definitely unique in metal or just music in general. So we have um, songs like The Astronomer Pig. I don't know, you know this concept of this one, Rob. Would you like to explain it? I... <laughs> So, so as far as I'm aware, it's a pig who believes who can see the stars in a puddle, um, but then he can't look up and actually see them, so he can only see the stars when it's raining. Um, that's as far as I've got with it. So, is there more it, to it than that? It, it's effectively it's based around the sadness of the fact that pigs' necks are built in such a way they can't actually look up, and they they've extended this out so when a when when this pig, the astronomer pig in title here. Sees, sees stars. He can only see them after a rainstorm. Mm. And when going to investigate the stars that seem to be in these puddles below him, he'll reach out to touch them and they'll all run away as if they're <laughs> mocking him. And he gets very upset about this. <laughs> that's the main That's the main concept of the song. The Last Glass Eye Maker we mentioned earlier is about a man who makes a glass eye for himself but then gets jealous of this glass eye he's put all his love into, because whenever he puts it in his head, it seems to be staring at other people other than him. And the song descends into an extremely sort of heavy stoner rock riff of <laughs> him just screaming at this glass eye because it doesn't <laughs> love him. <laughs> with lyrics of like, I will not share you with this world because fuck you backwards. <laughs> Which is, like Because of the delivery as well, it's done so well and the whole build up the sort of driving insanity of the piece with such an unusual vocal delivery works beautifully yeah you can really you can really hear Harry acting out these songs though mm. he gets very involved with them and his yeah his vocal delivery I think fantastic but it is something truly unique um he's probably the most prolific of the musicians in his band he's a hell of a lot of other projects mm. this seems to be the one where he's most exploring his weirdness so he's in i think one of the more famous of his other projects is a band called end level boss yeah 
which he's in with um, ex-Akakok, a bassist, Peter Theobalds. And this is a far more kind of traditional stoner rock project where he sings far more cleanly. Earls of Mars, it seems to take this in an incredibly weird direction. Mm-hmm. And the sort of, not just how he sings, but the way he organises the lyrics and, you know, sort of staccato bits, particularly in The Swinger, is a great example of how there'll be random pauses and then he'll come back into it. But it, it always feels like it works for the song. It always sort of carries the emotional highs or lows of the song or whatever and always draws your attention to it. It's impossible to ignore pretty much, but I think it works almost every time. Yeah, I mean, one of the most extreme examples has to be the track in the middle of this album, Otto the Magnificent, yeah, which yeah. is... For intents and purposes, a really mellow jazz song, just led by it's the got double a really bass. Nice bass line in it, yeah. Um, which halfway through the song, um, he just starts doing scat jazz. Yeah. <laughs> and it's a weirdly distorted <laughs> vocal pattern, but yeah, it fits. And there's, there's a sort of almost spoken word bit beforehand, which goes along with the song. But it adds to the slight, slightly sinister atmosphere of the bass line. Yeah, I, I really like it. And post this bit of scat jazz, Dave Newman, the drummer, does a trumpet solo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah what, what I found very interesting about this album, and I'm not sure if this is completely true, but as far as I can tell, so we have at one point the bass player also plays an accordion on this and the aforementioned trumpet solo. I think this album could literally be played through live and sound exactly the same. I don't um, think there's a single overdub on the album. To point out as well, the bass player is also credited with um, juggling <laughs> on, on, on the album. So that was probably important somewhere. <laughs> but yeah, it's a, a very interesting proposition that when. So the EP that followed, we see the first kind of evolution in their sound where there is clearly second guitar parts. There is, it's far more built up as a more kind of a more aggressive sound because we get mm. so much more electric guitar in there. Uh, Rob mentioned the track Fisticuffs earlier. This track opens the album and it's got far heavier, faster guitar than we've we've heard before. And at this point, like Dan's guitaring seems to have massively jumped a leap from the last album. It also starts with an incredible scream. Oh, yes. <laughs> and also Fisticuffs as well ends with this sort of gang vocal bit, which mm. is sounds incredibly epic and brings the song to an incredibly strong close. And there's a good video of them in the studio um, sort of doing this part together where they're all sort of standing in a circle singing this gang vocal melody, which is really cool. Yeah, so it starts off as a very, like, almost thrash metal, really fast, aggressive song. And at one point descends into the gang vocal part Rob was talking about. This is basically like a kind of railroad blues type chant mm, mm. and then we get um, over that Dan comes in with like the most melodic solo I think he's ever done like mm. a really impressive piece and of the Harry comes in with more vocals over the top of that <laughs> as well building this sort of amazing mosaic which brings the song to an incredible close yeah it's it's quite an intense piece but really worth a listen and it's only a four track EP oh sorry five track there's an instrumental outro mm. but each one is a very different idea so we have Who Done It that follows that that's far more very sinister and melodic. I think mm, it's uh, mm. the tale of a man killing his girlfriend and then himself yeah. and then making it look like they did a joint suicide. <laughs> Fantastically uh, happy concept mm, there. Mm. Actually, I think this album conceptually might, also EP might conceptually be about different kinds of serial killers. I'm not quite sure, but there seems to be a lot of murder going on in the lyrics. 
Yeah, I think as well, uh, was it uh, Mel, your girlfriend, had a, a theory about The Swinger as well as to what that was about? Yeah, I think it was The Swinger is a, well, contains one of possibly the best lines they have, they, they ever have, Rob. <laughs> yeah, so looking through the lyric book, which is full of amazing pictures. Uh, but there's a sort of bit where the song quiets down, you'll hear it in a second, but as it does, is it, um, as it, as he danced, there came a sneer from the crowd, the kind of derision only the foolish are allowed. Which he does with amazing sort of rolled R's and incredible delivery as the song pulls down to just the bass line again. But yeah, it's great. <laughs> this song is all about uh, a, a character dancing like a possessed man while, mm. while onlookers can't understand. The, the theory from Mel is this is a song about a man dying from syphilis <laughs> and going through the throes of violent uh, mm. seizures. But who knows? It could be about many things. We have a lot of interesting concepts yeah. here. Like, for for example, the, the final full song from the EP, Mr. Peeps Never Sleeps. Yeah, which is a song which is incredibly catchy on first listen. I listened to it quite a lot when I got this EP. Um, and then sort of started to think about the lyrics that I was actually listening to. And then didn't really want to think about it again. But, <laughs> but it, it does fit really well. Like, I like the creepy atmosphere they get on the songs, which are perhaps on the face of it a bit catchy. But if you listen to all the instrumental parts along with the lyrics, it just sounds really creepy. Um, complete with Harry at some points doing the voice of a small child, which is terrifying. Yes, yes. <laughs> it's, it's, um, it sort of ends with him screaming about he's got a million and one ways of sitting there watching you die. Or it's, 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 it's really good, but um, a bit weird. Yeah, I think um, this is definitely a band to watch. I'm sure they've got amazing things coming in the future. The members have said recently that I think they're putting most of their efforts into this band now because this band's got so much attention out of all the various projects they do. So I'm really hoping for a second full-length mm. album that builds on all the stuff that's brought so far. Uh, the song, yeah, the song which I think possibly the most representative one we can show uh, will play out with the swinger. <laughs>
shout aloud Cause they could not understand how this man was still alive The swinger was dancing with a beast in his eyes going to be covering today is Death's Sound of Perseverance, probably by far the most famous of the ones we've spoken about. This is the legendary final album by the godfather of death metal, Chuck Schollinger's definitely the kind of one of the first death metal bands ever and one of mm. the first to kind of pioneer the progressive death metal movement. I think a very interesting counterpoint to Alkaloid earlier was seeing kind of yeah. just complete different directions you can take this kind of sound in. And this is it's actually the on this, to forgive us to suffer, the seventh track on it is the first death metal song I ever heard. <laughs> and sort of, well, actually, no, I'd heard a little bit of Cannibal Corpse beforehand, but hadn't, I was about 12, so I hadn't really, hadn't really got into it at that point. But this is the first song which won me over. <laughs> the um, usual first reaction to Cannibal Corpse of just being <laughs> shit scared of it. <laughs> I, I used to find it quite funny. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah, there's and, that too. <laughs> yeah, and now obviously I find it really enjoyable. But um, this was a real sort of gateway album for me. 
I think Niall were the first band I actually laughed out loud at the locals when I first heard. <laughs> now love them, but yeah, as a 12-year-old, that yeah. seemed ridiculous. <laughs> yes, yeah, so this is the seventh and final album by Death. Almost the sixth and final, actually. At the point of um, record, like just before recording this, the end of the previous album, Chuck had kind of given up on death metal and really wanted to go in a different direction and had founded his project Control Denied. Mm. They, before this album, recorded two or three uh, demos, some of which were Chuck actually doing clean vocals for them. But the weight of interest in death at the time persuaded him back to record yet another death album. So this is not the final album we'll ever hear from Chuck. Uh, a year later, we'll get uh, Fragile Art of Existence by Control mm. Denied. Mm. An interesting album, I... I don't hold it in the same esteem as other death albums, but maybe we'll cover it. I think episode. when you're trying sort of a new genre, it's unsurprising that your first effort isn't your best. Hmm. But but I think this is sort of death fully realizing the true extent of the technicality that they built up over their sort of long period of doing live shows and making albums, and also with some of the most interesting. Well, I think the most interesting drummer death have had. Um, oh, I think there would be some extremely the, hot debate the, on that one. It's, I mean, because Gene Hoagland is a fantastic drummer. He's been in Strapping Young Lad as well, who are a band I absolutely love. But Richard Christie is the man who got me interested in death metal through his drumming, because I was a drummer at the time. But also, again, from a songwriting perspective, it's, I think, sort of some of the best songs death have ever written are on this album. Yeah, yeah. And actually, it should be mentioned, but I've forgotten his name. Uh, the cynic drummer who's on Human is incredible yes, as well. Yes, yeah. I yeah. Gene Hoagland's the one everyone can remember. Yeah, but but almost every deaf drummer um, has been incredible. Yeah, they, they have had an amazing lineup. Actually, talking about it, it's a really interesting starting point for this. So, um, post uh, individual thought patterns and um, symbolic, we've now chuck, kicked out the entire lineup. So, we've lost Gene Hoagland, we've lost all those really interesting musicians mm. like Steve Jett. Steve Diageo is long gone. Um, so we're now... He's brought in three completely unknown musicians at this time. Uh, Shannon Ham on guitars, Scott Clendon on bass, and Richard Christie on drums. Um, all relatively unknown at the time. But shouldn't be underestimated. All incredible mm. musicians. Mm. Absolute virtuosos in their own right to go with kind of a level Chuck's Lee guitar playing had got to. Yeah, his, yeah. I mean, he was incredible by human, so the level he had got to at this point is truly impressive. So this is probably the most progressive chapter Death ever went through. This mm, is definitely. the kind of, obviously, the final evolution, but it's that step up from the previous album, Symbolic. Um, songs are getting longer, they're more clean and melodic and probably go through more movements as well I'd say yeah, definitely there's a lot more variation in the sort of riffs that are there and then in the different types of leads and solos that are used over it and Chuck's vocals have evolved over the entire career of Def and are now at sort of their highest uh, and you know experimenting with some of the clean stuff as well and particularly sort of the vocal spotlight I'd always draw you to is the cover of Painkiller at the end of this album which I think is an incredible cover yeah so this is like I think effectively a bonus track on the album. Mm. But everyone has to check this out. It's, it's, it's pretty much the same as the original. In mm, they, they don't mm. play with the structure much, but it just has <laughs> Chuck screaming. <laughs> a weird mix of the sort of um, higher death growls that he does on this album and clean singing, which somehow works in an incredible way. It sort of sounds much even more sort of driven and demented than Rob Halford sounds on the original Painkiller, which is a hell of a song. 
Yeah. So, like, to, to like the more standard track list, we've got an eight-track album, ignoring the, the bonus end track. Most tracks coming in six, seven minutes long. Um, they're going for a huge amount of movement. So the intro track, uh, Scavenger of Hune and Sorrow, not really intro, first track on the album, is, again, like about a six-minute-long song. It has... It, like each song on this record must have about twenty odd riffs in it. Yeah, like, yeah. It goes through so many movements, and like a very brave way of introing the album with a drum solo. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, there's, there's a lot of that on this album, and I, the drumming is something I really want to talk about because Richard Christie's drumming to me doesn't sound like almost any other drummer I know, particularly uh, on "To Forgive Is to Suffer," where it starts off with this really sort of strange mm-hmm. drum intro, which really sort of drew my interest when I first heard it. Um, he does a lot of a lot of the fills have a lot of cymbal work in them, which I really like. Um, instead of just going straight around the toms, which works a lot of the time, but he manages to effortlessly put in a huge amount of hitting on the cymbals at the same time, moving around the kit in unexpected ways. And he just generally, I never sort of expect the fills that he's going to do before I listen to this album about two hundred times or something. <laughs> yeah, he he really does drive this album in an incredible way. It really keeps this kind of. Um motif of like constantly changing because mm. his drum beats are so interesting and um dynamic like gene hogan incredible player but he has more of a tendency to get into a groove and that's what mm. what he'll stick with i mean his playing on the previous two albums is well, spectacular and, 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 and a lot of the time that really works particularly with this album richard christie works because he was saying it's more progressive it goes through more movements and gene hogan on a lot of albums like the earlier deaf albums they go through less movements and so they like sticking to a solid groove works much better. So I'm not trying to say Gene Hoagland's a bad drummer. Well, I, I think the, the difference is, we say, like, symbolic, you'll never get, there's no tracks on this that are as heavy as Zero Tolerance. You won't, no. you're not going to get, like, and it's no kind of Thousand Eyes style, like, just brilliant rock song almost, yeah. like, kind of death metal, like, influence rock. But I mean, talking about all the sort of variation on it, it's not to say it doesn't repeat itself and have catchy sections, uh, particularly Flesh and the Power It Holds, which is the longest song on the album, has sort of repeating motifs in it, as well as the rest of the sort of progressive madness and all the um, guitar bits that happen on the album. It does have these really sort of catchy repeating sections, and as well as having really heavy sections which repeat, it does have... Um, sort of more melodic sections which repeat throughout it. So it's not something that doesn't have a direction. It has a very firm direction. It just experiments more in between these segments. Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, I think this one as well has the most showcasing of the musicians involved in it. Like, almost everyone has patches and songs where you just hear them playing. Like, Mm. almost every track on this album starts with an intro solo of some (laughs) kind, be it, like, two seconds of lead guitar or, like, a drum solo on the intro to Scavenger of Human Sorrow Mm. on To Forgive Us To Suffer. Um, Yeah, every... Oh, well, then you've got Spirit Crusher that has a really complex bass intro that any bass player ever has learned to play. (laughs) Sounds fantastic. Like, we just have, like, a lot of musicians getting their own spotlight. And throughout the album, it's mixed in such a way, everything's really clear and crisp. Mm -hmm. Like, you can hear the bass despite the kind of complexity of guitar parts around it despite particularly on spirit crush as well like despite the complexity of the drum parts and the guitar parts that are going on over the top you really can hear what the bass is doing underneath which provides a really solid grounding when again drums and guitars are going all over the place a lot of the time so it, it grounds the songs quite well yeah yeah and um actually new, uh, like new guitarist shanham his leads really stand up versus like 
Paul Mastervals from Human or, mm. or Andy Roke in individual yeah, formats. Yeah. And, and I mean, Diamond. these are legendary guitarists yeah, up against yeah. him. He, he holds his own in doing equivalently catchy, very um, melodic but yet technical leads. Which is an amazing thing, bringing in a whole new lineup to bring out an album that's this strong is phenomenal, really. Yeah, yeah, it, it showed the ability Chuck had at this time to pull together a really mm. interesting lineup. I mean, Obviously, we've got the standard thing of death at the stage of they've long given up on the kind of conceptual themes of the early albums. We have the kind of revamped death logo with none of the cobwebs or uh, <laughs> Grim Reaper head. Bizarrely, there's still the Grim Reaper siphon in it. He felt that was essential to keep in there. Yeah, but, yeah. Uh, and yet, so we like the songs are all about more social themes, more personal things. Uh, Chuck were very, yeah, came out in a lot of interviews kind of being quite harsh towards bands still singing about demons and Satan and mm. so on, which I think is unfair. I quite like songs about <laughs> demons and Satan and zombies. No, but yeah, of course, having something else is perfectly cool. But that doesn't mean the singing about demons is wrong. That's still a great <laughs> thing. Yeah. Um, but of course, also, it's got Voice of the Soul on it, which is one of the best instrumentals, I think, ever written. Really. Yeah, this this has to be mentioned. Where track six, just after Flesh and the Parrot Holds, we get a three-minute instrumental that I think is entirely played by Chuck. It's a mainly acoustic guitar backing with a twin lead kind of mm. um, trade-off over the top where it just it is one of the most kind of catchy, melodic instrumentals that there is in metal. I really don't... With, with the full metal guitar tone on the soloing guitars over the top, an amazing sort of marriage of acoustic guitars to, you know, like death style electric guitar solos over the top, which works incredibly. It's a really beautiful song. Yeah, yeah. I mean these leads wouldn't have sounded out of place in the philosopher. They then mm, like mm. they are very much Chuck's leads and it was just a very interesting way of expanding the death sound here. I mean, yeah, who knows where this might have gone had we had more time. I mean mm. obviously you're probably all aware Chuck uh, unfortunately passed away three years after the release of this album. Uh Due to brain cancer, I believe. Uh, very sad. So this this is the final chapter in Death's legacy. And yeah. I think an extremely strong one to yeah, end it's, on. It's, it's a hell of a way to end the career. Like it, I, I, It's my favourite Death album. but And Death have such a strong sort of discography. But this really is an incredible monument to leave behind. Yeah, I mean, the only real criticism like I think a lot of people have for this, this album is... Possibly you could argue some of the songs are slightly disjointed because the, because of the nature of trying to put so many riffs into every song, mm -hmm. so many parts, so many changes. I think say tracks like Bite the Pain or Story to Tell do have a few abrupt changes which are slightly... I guess like one of the slight weaknesses of this, this piece. Yeah, I mean, sometimes that does work quite well. Um, but obviously sometimes it is a bit jarring. And that comes with the territory, I suppose, when you're doing progressive metal and sort of pushing the boundaries of this sort of thing, seeing how many riffs, how many movements you can fit in a song. But yeah, sometimes it, it doesn't work quite as well as it does in... Well, again, on most of the songs it works beautifully. But a couple of times it falls a little flatter. Yeah, yeah. So, like, it, interesting to mention post this album. So, um, Chuck, after this album, took the entire lineup of this band, they obviously toured this album with Death, and then took that entire lineup to record the um, Control Denied's Fragile Art of Existence, mm. um, bringing in a new vocalist to kind of, I forget the name of the guy, but he's a very Nevermore-esque singer. Mm. Mm. Um, and uh, sadly, yeah, passed away not long after the release of that album. 
Um, since then, we didn't really see a hell hell of a lot more from uh, Shanahan and Scott uh, Clendenin. Um, obviously, Richard Chrissy went on to a profitable stand-up comedy career. <laughs> which, which I've never really understood. Great drama, but I don't really get his comedy. And then, then has had a lot of work uh, working with bands like Iced Earth and recent, uh, well, fairly recent, like, supergroup Charles of the Dam. With uh, Tim Owens and Steve DiGiorgio. Yeah, uh, yeah. We, uh, Again, like, his Iced Earth stuff is well worth checking out. Iced Earth are a band that I've sort of dipped into occasionally and definitely worth checking out. But um, Charles of the Damned in particular are a really interesting one. With Tim Owens, who's a fantastic vocalist, also of Iced Earth fame at various points. Um, but with Richard Christie's drumming, they're a really interesting band. So they're definitely... A nice evolution from this, which some of the members have taken. Yeah, I think I think it, that project does have some leanings, possibly towards this album. Oh, Maybe definitely. that is just because Richard Chrissy's drumming was such a driving force on this mm, album. It's mm. hard not to hear him and anything he's done yeah, since. Yeah. But but I think there's definitely elements of that sort of progressive death metal in that, even though you're talking about something which almost has power metal leanings as well for Tim Rip of um, Owens' vocals. Well, I would say this album, to some extent, does have some of that kind of power metal leanings. Like Because Chuck obviously was writing that at the mm, time of mm. doing this. There is leanings on this album. Maybe not, not full-blown Son of Antica kind of leanings, <laughs> but... Um, there's definitely a massive move towards melodicism more than any of the previous albums. Oh yeah, definitely. You have to remember all their previous albums were slowly going that way, kind mm, of uh, mm. uh, spiritual healing onwards. Uh, yeah. Also, should be mentioned, like sadly, Scott, the bass player, passed away in 2015. Like, uh, yeah, didn't have much. Like, I've not really heard any of his career past this. So I'm not really sure what he went on to do, but yeah. That was a yet another tragedy. We lost half the yeah. lineup of this great album. Yeah, now. I mean, but to, to have been on an album like this, and particularly because the bass and all the other instruments are so audible in this album, it's it's such a great legacy to leave behind. Mm. The the only kind of strange thing related to that recently. So uh, Bloodstock two years ago, both me and Rob saw mm. the the lineup. Death to all. Yeah, yeah. death to all. Um, which is uh, can you remember the lineup of that? It's the new vocalist. Uh, Steve DiGiorgio. Yeah, um, I remember Steve DiGiorgio was in it. Was it Gene Hoagland drumming? I think it was Gene Hoagland. Yeah, it was Gene Hoagland drumming. And I can't remember which guitarist from their past they got for that, but this was a fantastic tribute to death. Mm. Really worth seeing if you can. It's not death and will never... No, but it's it's sort of like a tribute band with original members, which Mm. is... You know, like, it's an amazing thing to see. And I've seen sort of um, other bands like that. I've seen Thin Lizzy with a new vocalist and stuff. And it's, what it is, is just a tribute band with original members. And that's your ideal tribute band. Because you'll, unfortunately, we'll never hear the real thing anymore. But, and, and yeah, the weird thing I suppose we're going to talk about is how so we have a new guitarist and vocalist taking the position of Chuck. Who else had the same hair as Chuck? Looks weird, <laughs> yes, weirdly like Chuck. But um, his vocals were turned down <laughs> a little bit too much, I thought. Yeah, he did. He did slightly suffer in that mix. I, I guess, like you know, it's festival sound. You can't. Yeah, always sometimes guarantee. you can't guarantee these things. Yeah, but definitely worth seeing if you can. The only slight criticism I had of that is Scott, the bass player from this album, had died maybe like four months before that tour, and they made no mention of him as a mm. tour that was an mm. entire um, tribute to the tragically short life of Chuck. Thought you could make. Mentioning some of the other musicians, yeah, yeah, some of the other ones that have been lost along the way. I, I don't know, maybe that's that's just my my take on it. But otherwise, very good tribute to Chuck. Um, I don't think it was really stepping on any toes doing that. I don't. No, not at all. Considering you have members who were there throughout the formation and Def's career, you have a lot of people who 
you know, have as much right to as this stuff as well, not perhaps much as right as Chuck, but people who knew Chuck very well. So it has that sort of authenticity to it when you see it. Yeah, yeah, definitely. But yeah, so to take us out for this uh, set, we thought we'd go for To Forgive Us To Suffer, one of the tracks towards the end of this album, really showcases the amount of changes in pace you get on this album, and, and like a lot of the melodic playing and so on. I believe this one intros with a lead guitar solo. Um, oh, this, this, is, this is the drum solo. Oh, no, it's a drum yeah, solo. Because it? this is the first death metal song I ever heard, and sort of what got me hooked. I got a Vader album soon afterwards, but um, <laughs> this, this album soon after that, and this is what got me into death metal, so I really like this track. Yeah, this, uh, and I think you'll probably be able to see what we're saying of like I believe this album should be cemented in its position as a kind of progressive heavier metal kind of mm. album what at the time was hilariously referred to as thinking man's metal <laughs> uh, which including bands like Watchtower yeah, Sieges yeah. even uh, Atheist <laughs> thank god that that, that <laughs> <has died>. yeah. <laughs> but yeah this is death to forgive us to suffer mm.